Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio, and we are backstage at Revolution Hall. We've got a great show for you coming up. Comedian Ian Carmel is here. We've got music from the band Houndstooth. And from the Risk podcast, we have Kevin Allison here. Kevin, we're calling this episode Risky Business, mostly in your honor. You've been in show business forever. You were part of the state. I'm wondering, though, have you ever decided it's too risky and you just decide, I'm going to get my real estate license? (laughs) Yes, actually. I actually went into publishing. I quit the performing arts in about the year 2000. And that lasted about three years. And then I just needed to get back up on that stage. What did you miss? Like the approval of the crowd or the fact you don't have to go in at 9 a.m.? You know, it was funny because it was really using my voice. I need to be up on that stage saying my own stuff again. Okay, well, this is perfect, Kevin, because we have a stage. So let's go do that. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with Risk podcast creator and host Kevin Allison, stand-up comic Ian Carmel, music from Houndstooth, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, if raising competitive fighting raccoons is a risky business, that's a risk he's willing to take, Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you to people who think it's the Arsenio Hall Show. (laughs) Thanks to uh, everybody for coming out here to Revolution Hall. We have a great show for you. Our uh, theme this hour is Risky Business, which will become uh, apparent to you throughout the hour uh, why we chose that theme. I did something kind of risky today, which is I got my hair cut. (laughs) Always a risky choice. I had to get my hair cut because... My wife told me that I was starting to look like a combination of Beethoven and a not-hot version of Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey. (laughs) So I had no choice. Um, It's risky getting your hair cut because no matter what you say to the person who's cutting your hair beforehand, they're pretty much going to do what they're going to do. Like, I go in and I say to the lady... Uh, please, just a very little bit of a trim. And they always end up cutting off much more hair than I asked them to. It's the only line of work where you're asking the person to do less of their job and they're hell-bent on doing more of their job, <laughs> even though they're getting paid the same amount. Um, when I was uh, uh, growing up as one of seven kids, my uh, dad would cut our hair when we were little. And then we started going to school where there were other kids who could see our heads. (laughs) And we realized he didn't know the first thing about cutting hair. So we started bugging our mom to take us to a real place to get our hair cut. But we had a lot of kids, and my mom was cheap, and there was no way she was paying for store-bought haircuts. (laughs) So she came up with a really elegant solution, which was the Supercuts Training Center. (laughs) Not sure if anybody is familiar with this ring of hell. But, like, I don't know if you've ever had a $9 haircut, but these were the people that didn't have the credentials yet to give a $9 haircut. They were in training to get to that point. And they tried to call it modeling. They were like, you're a haircut model. But I looked around that airline hangar we were in, and there were no models. Just a lot of other poor kids (laughs) whose parents had dragged them there. My mom brought me to the training center one day, and I was seated in front of this very nice older woman named Maria who didn't speak a ton of English. And I was trying to explain to her that I wanted my hair to look like Jordan Knight from New Kids on the Block, (laughs) specifically in the video, I'll Be Loving You, parenthetically, forever. (laughs) And I was trying to demonstrate with hand signals because of the language barrier, how, it kinda, his, how Jordan Knight's hair came to kind of a point in the back. She said, okay, okay. And she starts cutting away. And I started to get a little nervous because I noticed that she's using the clippers that you use to trim the end of your sideburns and like the back of your neck. She's using that in the middle of the back of my head. <laughs> 
And she just keeps saying one thing over and over again, cryptically. I know you like. <laughs> and my suspicions were confirmed when the supervisor came over and I saw her horrified look in the mirror. And it was at that point that I realized Maria knew almost nothing about Jordan Knight's hair from the video for I'll Be Loving You, parenthetically, forever. What she had done was just shaved an enormous bald spot in the shape of a heart in the back of my head. The craziest part is this is what she thought I was asking for. She had this grin on her face while she was doing the work she must have been thinking inside, this crazy-ass white kid wants me to shave a skin heart in the back of his head. So they took Maria off the case. It was like one of those cop shows when they go rogue. They, like, took her clippers and her badge, and she was on, like, desk assignment for two weeks or something. And the only way that the supervisor could fix my hair was to basically shave almost my entire head so that it would all grow out evenly. And I don't know what the moral of this story is, people. I think it's, uh, there's stuff you should pay for, like dental work and haircuts. You should probably pay full price for those things. I will tell you a weird footnote, though, is that today I looked at the New Kids on the Block video for I'll Be Loving You Forever. And I actually think my cockamamie haircut that Maria gave me was way better than what Jordan Knight actually had in the video because he looks ridiculous, like comically ridiculous. So I guess that's... Maybe I got lucky on that one. All right, let's, um, let's update you guys on something that if you were either here at the show uh, back on Valentine's or maybe you happen to be listening to the program, uh, you remember that we had a couple on stage, okay? The theme of, of this show right now that we're doing is risky business. And what could be more risky than going on your first date on stage during a live radio show? We did this on Valentine's Day, and we got the idea because we had seen this column in the, in the Modern Love section of the New York Times where there was these 36 questions that if you asked these questions of somebody else on your first date, you were supposed to fall in love or your pizza was free. <laughs> and so we had these two people on stage who had never been on a date before. Their names were Jed and Katie, and we had them do the 36 questions. And I'll be darned if they didn't actually fall completely head over heels for each other. It was the most surprising moment we've had on Livewire, at least since I've been here. So I wanted to give you guys an update on Jed and Katie. They are still together to this day. Uh, they see each other every day, they tell us. This is a cute story they passed along. After their first date, they kissed on the street outside the restaurant, and two cars and a giant truck honked as they passed by, and they remarked, I guess we're just going to have this whole relationship in public. <laughs> so we're going to have them on next month to do a check-in, but a lot of you have been asking, so we just wanted to uh, make sure you knew that, in fact, they are still together. They are totally real people, and that's what's going on with Jed and Katie, okay? Our musical guest this episode is not only an electric folk outfit from Portland that's been getting all sorts of critical love lately, they're also named for the fabric pattern I regrettably chose for my tuxedo for the junior dance at North Seattle Christian. <laughs> Their latest album is No News From Home. Please welcome Houndstooth to Livewire. My mind 
Giovanni's room After he went wild In the afternoon So I hit the streets And I met you there In the golden hour On the dusty square Ladies and gentlemen, that was great. Right here on Livewire Radio, this week our theme is risky business. In 1983, high school senior Joel Goodson started a very risky business. I'm in your life, my kid. He raised $8,000 in one night, a night he'd never forget. Now, it's 32 years later, and Joel Goodson has to make a tough decision to save his family's future. Joel, we're losing the house. What are we going to do? Dad, are we going to be homeless? No, we won't, son. Guys, I got an idea. For one night only, we're going to open a brothel. Oh, God. Really? Again? Yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah, again. Tom Cruise returns to his iconic star-making role as a father with a plan. Are you nuts? Dad, brothels aren't the answer to every predicament you find yourself in. Yeah, I know that. Really? Really? Because our property taxes were raised and you opened a brothel. You had to supplement your 401k, you opened a brothel. You didn't know what to get for mom for your anniversary, brothel. Okay, Yeah, but to be fair, that one was a particularly romantic brothel. Nope, no it wasn't. This fall, Joel will have to struggle to make $50,000 in one night while keeping his family together. I am so tired of opening and closing and then reopening brothels. Why don't we just keep one open? The startup cost and LLC fees alone are killing us. Listen, Cheryl, some people work in an office or are doctors, okay? We are a brothel-opening family. That's what we do. Yeah, no, we're not. I'm a cheesemonger at Whole Foods. You're a pimp. Coming this Thanksgiving from Paramount Pictures. Listen, honey, there is a time to play it safe, and there is a time for... Don't say it. Risky... I said don't say it! ...business. Risky business, too. When the going gets tough... The tough open brothels. No, they don't. They take out a second mortgage is what they do. Rated R. That was Sean McGrath 
Andrew Harris and Courtney Hameister. You're listening to Livewire, the show that's no stranger to risk. Last week, we ate a tuna salad two days past the expiration date. Life and death, they're just words to us, man. Don't hitch your wagon to this danger express, ladies or dudes. It can only end in heartbreak. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, who offer up this tip on goal setting. Make them small, realistic, and achievable, and you might actually reach them. So don't say, I want to be just like Gandhi. Say, I want to be less of a jerk to my cat. Or or don't say, this year I'm running a marathon. Just say, this year I'm going to sit less. Doesn't that feel freaking doable? That's because it is. With Ergo Depot sit-stand desks and active sitting solutions, you'll hit your goal in a single day. And then you'll be a better person, just like Gandhi. Visit ErgoDepot.com to start your transformation. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this week, Risky Business. You may remember Kevin Allison as the redhead gay from MTV's cult classic, The State. By the way... That was a character he played, not just a very unpublic radio way for us to introduce him to you. Uh, Anyway, since 2009, Kevin's been making huge waves in the storytelling world with his funny, daring, and poignant Risk show, which is also a super popular podcast. Risk describes itself as true tales boldly told by people ranging from the famous to the merely brave, telling stories they never thought they'd tell in public. Here with one such tale, please welcome Kevin Allison himself to Livewire. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, in 1996, Luna Lounge on Ludlow Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan was the church and temple and mosque of alternative comedy. Everyone was there. Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, everyone was there. And On a particular night at Luna Lounge that summer in 1996, I jumped upon that stage and wasn't quite sure what I was about to do because I had so much stage fright that summer. The thing of it was, I had just lost my group. The state, the sketch comedy group that I had like built the last eight years of my career with, had just dissipated and fallen apart. And when I stepped on that stage at Luna Lounge that night, it was the first time that I was stepping on a stage feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm all alone up here. Because when you're a part of a group, you get up on stage and you feel like there's always someone there to catch you when you fall. But when you're up there all alone, you just don't know what might happen. So I got up on stage that night and here's what I had done. I had observed that Zach Galifianakis and Stephen Colbert and Amy Poehler and all these people were performing. And I kept coming, feeling like I was on like eight hits of acid. That's how nervous I was. Just to hang out there. My apartment was just two uh, buildings down. But I was so nervous just to enter that space. I would feel like I was tripping out just entering it because there was so much talent in the room. That's how much social anxiety and stage fright I was feeling. What I wasn't noticing was that all of these comedians were getting up on stage and owning the fact that they were nervous, right? They would admit that they were nervous and imperfect and kind of making jokes out of it. Me, I thought, no, 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 no. I have to be perfect. So I would memorize and memorize and memorize and memorize these monologues to get up on stage and do. So this particular night, I had a a monologue so memorized, at the end of the first paragraph, I was supposed to end the line by looking at someone in the audience and saying, think about it, bozo. (laughs) And I got to that point and completely blanked out. 
I had eight more paragraphs to go, and I had no idea what I was talking about. I thought to myself, oh my God, the whole reason I had memorized this so well, and the whole reason I had created this super confident character was to hide the fact that I am so unconfident about being up here and so feeling like I can't improvise and just be myself. But there I was, blank. So I decided, oh my gosh, uh, let's see what I should do. Let's just go back to the beginning of the monologue and start over. So I started over, blah, 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 blah. And I got to the line, think about it, bozo. And I blanked out again. It was like I had run to the very same edge of the very same cliff and didn't know what to do. I felt like one of those guys, you know, a clown in a dunking booth who's just going blah, 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 and then someone throws a baseball, and then I'm underwater staring at the audience. Finally, I was so unsure of what to do. I'm looking out the audience, and they're unsure of what the hell I'm doing. That I turned to the host, Jeff Ross, who was hosting that night. He couldn't even get off the stage because it was so packed that the host couldn't even make it off the stage. I turned to him, and I tried to tell him in a way that I thought just he would hear, but everyone heard it. I said, I can't do this. And I started to flee the room. Now, here's the thing. There were no aisles. This was the 1990s, right? Everything was so, like, grungy. They didn't even have seats for the audience to be sitting in. People were just sitting Indian-style on the floor. It was a total fire hazard. Between me and the door was about 50 feet of people just sitting there. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to cross over them. But here's the thing. Also, people knew this was the alternative comedy time, right? Everyone was trying to be Andy Kaufman. So people understood, oh, Kevin is playing this character who can't figure out what he's trying to say to us. Logically, that sort of fellow would be so out of his mind, he might also feel the need to flee comedy clubs at a moment's notice. So they heard me say, I can't do this. I start to climb over them like I'm climbing over cactuses in a field. And they start to say, no, you can't do it. Do it, do it, do it, do it. There's tears coming out of my eyes. I'm saying, no, 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 I really can't. And the next thing I know, I'm being body surfed. It was the 90s. It was all the rage. And the thing of it is, body surfing is even more awkward when everyone's sitting Indian style. So I'm just being kind of like flopped around on the ground until they finally vomit me back up on stage. And at that point, I realize I am no longer the dominant partner in this relationship. I have got to remember how to end this monologue. And so I just did. All the lines came back, and I delivered the monologue, and everyone loved it. And then years later, I heard a recording of Bob Dylan at Carnegie Hall. And he starts a song. He's about 22 years old. It's a big suit and tie affair. He starts a song. It just goes on and on. He's doing the same riff over and over and over and over, and you're like, What's going on, Bob? Until finally he stops and says, does anyone in the audience remember how this song goes? <laughs> and the audience yells it out and he continues. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's the key. The thing of it is, when you're on stage, you've always got someone there to catch you when you fall. You're never completely alone because the audience is there with you. So if you find yourself in a situation like that where you're looking at a bunch of people and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm all alone here, I'll bet you they think you can do it. Thank you.
Kevin Allison, ladies and gentlemen. I could have used uh, that advice, I don't know, about 50 episodes of Livewire ago. <laughs> Indeed. Was that a, a huge moment for you when you learned that even if things are going really, really badly up there, there is sort of a way out? It's, it's probably not maybe as mortifying as to the audience as it feels like it is to you? It really did take many years later for me to realize it because that very night, a big, big agent from a big Hollywood agency said to me, oh my gosh, that was so great. And I said, ah, I really was trying to escape that theater. You should and have never admitted no, to that. No, I shouldn't have. But he said, oh my gosh, well, that's the worst it can ever get. You've lived through the actor's nightmare. And I said, yeah, but it was still hell. <laughs> but no, years later when I started... <laughs> years later when I started telling my own stories... Somehow things changed. When I started telling my own stories, I felt much more like I was in conversation with an audience. And so that if someone disagreed with me, I could just, you know, look out at the audience and be like, all right, whatever. Yeah. You lived it, too. So you're probably the expert on what That's exactly true. happened. That's true. Yeah, yeah. How did you get the idea for the risk show? I had... A for the 12 years after the state broke up, I was doing these crazy, kooky characters. I was getting up on stages like Frankenstein's monster or like... Guy you know, who doesn't know the monologue he practiced. It's <laughs> a variety of characters. Richard Simmons, Charles Manson, all these people. And then I did... <laughs> I did this. I did this show called. What was your Charles Manson? The, you know, it was a guy who wasn't sure if he was Charles Manson or not, and was upset at the audience for not being sure that you know they weren't able to help him out with whether or not that's who he was. So uh, you know, a lot of very confusing stuff. Um. And then how did that lead you to doing The Risk Show? And by the way, was it a, always the intention to have it as a podcast? Or was that after you were doing it live and you thought, oh, we should record this? You know, what happened was in 2008, I did a show called F Up, uh, which was five characters who had effed up their careers. <laughs> Very autobiographical. Um, <laughs> And Michael Ian Black, who had been a member of the state, came to sure. see the show in San Francisco. And he said, you know, I wish you would just drop the act and start speaking as yourself. And I said, ah, oh, but I'm so gay and so kinky and so Midwestern and so friendly. All these things that don't add up. I was going to say, you just said five things that are not related to each other. Exactly. I was like, I'm too many things that Hollywood would not get when you put them together. I said, it just feels too risky. And he said, that's it. If it feels risky, then you're opening up and being authentic, and then an audience is bound to open up to you. So the very next week, I said, all right, I'll try telling a true story on stage. I went back to New York at UCB Theater and tried telling a story about the first time I tried prostituting myself. Uh, the first time? E emphasis on the word. No, the important word is tried. I was not cut out for that. I guess, thankfully, I was not cut out for that line of work. Um, Can you give me the 30-second version of why your attempt to be a prostitute <laughs> failed? Because I had no idea how to negotiate, you know? I'm not good... I'm not good at, like, setting financial terms, you know? Somebody showed up with, like, a Groupon that was expired. <laughs> Like, I have no idea. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, have you... Uh, Risk is... Uh, by the way, it's such a great podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. And, and you do have lots of people, some of them well-known, some of them less well-known, telling these stories that they've often never told before and never told in public. Has there ever been something that you haven't been able to play because it like implicated somebody in a crime or was Absolutely. just too gross? Absolutely. All the time. The, the, the whole idea with Risk is... It's stories that people uh, feel that they would not normally be able to share in public. So uh, stories that you probably couldn't play on public radio. And it's kind of a therapeutic process with me for each person who appears on the show. Some of the stories are absolutely hilarious and gross and silly. And some of the stories are absolutely devastating, horrifying, you know. So... 
Yes, there have been many cases where a person, you know, uh, told a story to me and they were crying and I was crying and I finally decided, I'm going to send you home with this recording and you decide what you want to do with it. Or I myself felt like, oh, you haven't processed this enough. I always want people to feel like when they appear on risk, whether it's a funny story or a horrifying story, that it's an empowering thing for them, that they feel like they're, they're standing on it and they're proudly sharing it. Uh, you know, uh, for everyone's benefit. So uh, absolutely, there are many cases where I've had to tell people, I don't think you're ready, you know, that sort of thing. But stories about attempts at prostitution, that's cool. Oh, That's always ready for prime time. If you've got a failed attempt at prostitution, we can hug and have it out. There's a home for you on the Risk (laughs) Podcast. Kevin Allison, ladies and gentlemen. And now, an open letter to women who are getting Brazilians and ruining it for the rest of us. Dear women who are getting Brazilians and ruining it for the rest of us, I get it. There's a lot of pressure out there to appear attractive, so I understand the desire to pluck things and shellac things and even use a wand to apply coats of paraffin, methylcellulose, and pigmentation to the hair around our eyeballs to make them appear thicker and longer. Yes, it is weird that our culture has decided that our eyeballs don't have enough hair around them, but other parts have too much. But even so, you've gone too far. I understand that it's complicated down there, that in an ideal world we should make it as simple as possible to navigate what can be a dark and confusing place. But in the same way we currently regret raising the rainforests, the women of the future will regret your personal rainforest raising as the era when we could have saved ourselves a lot of pain, but chose not to. Now maybe you feel like we've gone too far down the waxing road and we can't turn back. Not true. Our culture's hair decisions are clearly arbitrary and reversible. We've moved on from Burt Reynolds' mustache and the dark days of 80s claw bangs, but we've also gone back and re-embraced the mutton chop and the pixie cut. That means we can go back to a simpler, more accepting time when afros were all the rage. Everywhere. This is about creating a new cultural contract, one that says that we all want to be attractive, we just don't want that attractiveness to cause more pain than a standard dental cleaning, and that our personal hygiene rituals should never trigger our fight-or-flight response. We can do this if we band together, if we decide as a gender that pain hurts and we will no longer pay $70 to have another woman tell us about her boyfriend's weird mole while ripping hair out of a spot we don't even allow ourselves to see because it's frankly kind of weird looking and nature has provided natural cover for it which we should use. And men can make the same contract with other men about their backs and chests and which are also weird looking and we can become a culture of happy furry people indecipherable from our prehistoric ancestors aside from the cell phones and rampant narcissism we will go back to our roots which we will stop dying eventually when I'm ready and we will be content until we find something else to feel terrible about which will be really really soon. Thank you. Courtney Hommeister, who I was really with up until the end, about the Neanderthal part, but the rest of it I'm in total agreement on. Uh, You're listening to Livewire, the show that just took a little risk with the FCC. If you're planning to be in the Portland area on April 25th, come see a live show complete with swears and screw-ups. Our guests will be Conan sidekick Andy Richter, author John Ronson, animator Bill Plimpton, music from Ivan and Alyosha, and many more. You can find more information at livewireradio.org. Before he was appearing on Conan and writing for Chelsea Lately, as well as the new Late Late Show on CBS, Stand-up comic Ian Carmel was just a candle in the wind here in Portland, Oregon, never knowing who to cling to when the rain swept in. 
That's not true at all. He actually got crazy famous here and was declared Portland's funniest person and promptly headed for L.A. His first comedy album on Kill Rock Stars comes out later this year. Please welcome hometown legend Ian Carmel to Livewire. Lovely to see all of you. It's very nice to be back here in Portland. It's so nice to be home. I've been, I've been overseas a lot recently. Actually, I've been spending a lot of time overseas. I was in Canada. I was in Canada. I, uh, I was in Canada. While I was in Canada, I learned something new. I learned that Canadians have stereotypes about Americans. We're not the only ones who can come up with stereotypes. We're the best at it, but Canadians can also do it. And their stereotypes are about us here in America. And what Canadians think about America, they think we are dumb and racist. They do. They think we're dumb. But I was, I was in Canada. I got right in their faces. I didn't let them get away with it. I got right in their Canadian faces. And I said, I did. I said, who told you we're dumb and racist? Who said that? Was it a Puerto Rican? Did a Puerto Rican tell you that? I bet it was. You can tell me. I bet, I bet a Puerto Rican told you we're dumb and racist. I wish they'd go back to Africa where they're from. That's what I wish. <laughs> Think about it, bozo. Now, all right, uh. <laughs> I'm from here. I'm from Portland. I'm from Beaverton, Oregon. I can say that here. Yeah! Bunch of people who love Starbucks and Targets. Hell yeah, Beaverton. Ah. Uh. I'm from Be Beaverton, for those of you who don't know, for those of you listening on the radio, Beaverton is one of the whitest places in the United States. It's so white. The blackest kid in my high school was this Korean dude who could break dance a little bit, like a little. <laughs> well, he wasn't even good at it. He just had a Wu-Tang shirt, so we were all like, yeah, it's you. You're the one. You're the basketball team now. It's you. It's you and four jump shooters. Ah... Uh... Now I live, I live in Los Angeles now. Los Angeles is wonderfully diverse. It's so, it's so diverse. Even the neighborhood names in Los Angeles are diverse. The neighborhood names in L.A. are like uh, Little Armenia, Little Ethiopia, Thai Town, Chinatown, Little Tokyo, all of which are amazing Mexican-American communities. It's very... <laughs> it's very diverse. You're being a very Portland crowd right now. You know, they're listening... They're listening, like, oh, everyone around the country, somebody in Tuscaloosa right now is like, that. they find that offensive? All right, uh. <laughs> I miss Portland a lot. There's things I don't miss. There's certainly things I don't miss about Portland. Everyone here is very outdoorsy, and I don't care for that one bit. I don't like it. Uh. <laughs> I am not an outdoorsy person. I'm just not, I'm not. I'm, if, if you told me I had 24 hours to build a campfire or you were going to murder me, I would just try to have a really fun last 24 hours, really. I wouldn't even try to make a fire. I'd just be like, I got a party bus. There's pizza on the party bus. We're going to take it to a water park, and you can murder me at the water park, huh? <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, I would wake up after a long night of drinking in a panic, right, with a bunch of questions like, oh, my God, what happened last night? Why am I wearing fingernail polish? Whose blood is this? What did I do? Like... Now I'm 30 years old, and now when I wake up after a long night of drinking, I wake up like, oh my God, I hope I didn't agree to go camping last night. <laughs> it is hard living in Los Angeles sometimes. P people there are so gorgeous, it's intimidating. I saw Ryan Gosling at the mall. I saw Ryan Gosling, which is, it was weird for a couple of reasons. At first, I wasn't even impressed that it was Ryan Gosling. I was weirded out that he was in a mall. You know, like, I assumed he never bought clothes. I thought he would just like pick up an electric guitar and sort of needle on it until clothes formed on his body. You know, like, but I saw him, and he was so gorgeous, it was astonishing. Like, I looked at him, like, he's so beautiful. Like, when Ryan Gosling and I were babies, we looked the same. Think about that. Think about that. <laughs> And look, I'm very comfortable with how I look. I think I'm a handsome guy, but the fact is, I look more like a giant panda than I look like Ryan Gosling. That's just a true thing. That's just a true thing. If you saw me, an actual giant panda, and Ryan Gosling all hanging out together, 
You'd be like, oh my God, Ryan Gosling bought two giant pandas. That's amazing. Good for him. Good for him. He shouldn't let that one eat burritos. That's not what they eat. It's not. I don't, I don't know if I'm a good person. And don't get me wrong, I don't think I'm a bad person. I just don't know if I'm a good person. And I'll, I'll explain. I, w I was in a Taco Bell drive through restaurant. Uh, treating myself like a lady, right? And, uh, there was one car in front of me. They pulled in maybe uh, 10, 15 seconds before me. I pulled in right after them. And I was thrilled, right? I was like, two cars at Taco Bell? I like these odds, yeah? right? I should have my food within 35 seconds. Diarrhea within the half hour, right? <laughs> and then the car in front of me at Taco Bell proceeded to take seven minutes to complete their order. Seven minutes. Seven American minutes. And I was in the car behind them getting so unreasonably angry that there is no way on earth I'm a good person, right? Like, I was more angry at this person for taking seven minutes at Taco Bell than I have ever been about any genocide in the history of mankind. And that's not a pretty thing to admit, but it's 100% true. It's 100% true. I'm a Jew. When I think about the Holocaust, I'm like, what a bummer. Hope that never happens again. Huh? But this car took seven minutes at Taco Bell. I was in the car behind them like, what the hell is going on in the world? What God would allow this? Seven minutes? Is it amateur hour at Taco Bell? I didn't know they had amateur hour at Taco Bell, but apparently it's amateur hour at Taco Bell. You don't come here and improvise. This isn't the Groundlings. You come to talk about the plan, coaches. You understand me? You come here with a plan. You don't just come up here and wiggle around on that. You don't, what do you even want? What do you even want at Taco Bell? What do you want? You want a tortilla? Some kind of gray meat product? Yellow tomatoes? Cheese? Sour cream? Order literally anything. That's all they sell. I was so angry. I was so angry, and we're all the same way. Everyone in this room is the exact same way. We all like to pretend we get angry about the right stuff, but none of us really do, right? We all want to pretend we get angry about righteous stuff. Like, if you were interviewed and they were like, what makes you so angry? You'd be like, oh, what a great question. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> probably war and poverty are the top two. War, poverty. Oh, and racism, of course. War, poverty, racism, three-way tie for first. Uh... And, but not really, right? I mean, of course they do in principle, you're a good person, but that's not what really gets you blood boiling. What really makes you angry is when the rent goes up $50. That's what makes you angry. When that happens, you and everyone else in the apartment complex are gathered in the courtyard like, we're gonna find the landlord. And we're gonna kill him in front of his family. You in? Seven minutes. And after seven minutes of perusing the menu like a rabbi with the Talmud, <laughs> this jamoke rolls down his window and orders one burrito. And I went from furious to confused so quickly. Because you can't order one item from Taco Bell because Taco Bell always forgets to give you at least one of your items. <laughs> Which means this man was handed a bag full of hot sauce and napkins for dinner. And he deserved it too. Seven minutes? Get the hell out of here. Thank you for your time. I've been Ian Carmel. Portland, I love you. Ian Carmel, ladies and gentlemen. The pride of Beaverton. How does it feel to be back? It feels great to be back. I'm here for like 30 hours, so uh, it, feels, it feels all too short, but I've already eaten several preserved meats, so I feel at home, yeah. Uh, is there anything that L.A. actually gets right that you actually think Portland could take a tip on? Uh, the outgoing flights to Portland. That's my favorite part of uh. Los Angeles. Uh, 
No, I, I, I don't know. They have really good, they have really good uh, Mexican food in Los Angeles. And then other than that, oh, like a bunch of jobs in my chosen field of work. That's like... <laughs> that's the, uh, that's, that's the, the upside. That's the main thing. Like, I, if I lived in Portland, I'd have to, like, host, like, a really fun, like, local sports show. You know what I mean? Where I'd be, like, it'd be me and then some person who, like, played three games for the Blazers in 1991. And, like, we'd banter. You know, like, I can't... I feel, though, like... Following you on Twitter, you would love that job, what you just described. I would love that. I would, that job would be kind of fun, but eventually I'd have to like become like a sports radio type guy, and the, you know, I don't want an all You'd have a nickname like Wheels. Yeah, Wheel. Well, we, we have a guy who's already Wheels. Yeah, he used to so be I'd in to, Seattle. I'd have to be like Big Rig or something like that. You know what I mean? like, <laughs> when you see the Big Rig coming, pull over, because that trailer's full of hot sports takes. Like, have to, you know, like, yeah. And you just stepped into the Michelada hot seat. Yeah, the Budweiser Michelada hot seat. Yeah, I mean, like that. Kind of... I, I feel like LA's valet parking game is strong. Oh, very excellent point. I love valet parking. That's one of my favorite and things. I moved down there from Seattle, and I thought, I assumed to valet park a car was $150. I, right? It's like $3. It's $3. It's a. And you just drive up, and then you give the keys to someone and give them $3, and you don't have to think about it again. The Northwest, it's raining per- all the time. Yeah. No valet parking anywhere. It's kind of silly. It's kinda, and, we're all, and we're so prideful. We love wa- just walking through the rain. You know what I mean? I know. No umbrella. It's a no. real point of pride for us. There's like a Portland. competition here to see like, who can like, brave the rain the most, where it's just like, I don't even wear a shirt when it rains anymore. <laughs> I just want it. <laughs> this is my newborn child. They're completely naked, and I hold them above my head. Like, <laughs> That part is very silly, but I go for a. I'm like, I don't want an. I don't want an umbrella. I, like, I won't eat anywhere, anywhere. Either. The last time uh, that we were here recording a show, it happened to be a very rainy night in Portland, and I had an umbrella. Yeah. And we went up on the roof of this amazing place we're in, Revolution Hall, and thirty to forty Portlanders were just standing in the rain, yeah. and I had an umbrella, and everyone was slowly moving closer to me. Like, because I was the one person who had a thing that would make the rain less terrible. And I thought, have any of you ever seen this before? And have you thought of carrying one? What is this terrible machine you're holding above your head? Were they coming in, like, trying to make small talk? Like, look, how are you? They were like the monkeys in 2001. (laughs) It keeps me dry, but does it steal my soul? Um, I, I, I want to, before we, we let you go, Ian, I want to talk about your new gig on oh, yeah. the new Late Late Show on CBS, hosted by a guy named James Corden. James Corden, wonderful, wonderful British man. Yeah, he's great. And uh, you guys have been doing great stuff so far in the young life of this show. Is it, when you're making a late night show, there's obviously a format that a lot of late night shows follow that is... Uh, it's familiar for the audience, yeah. and you've got to do certain things. But you're a funny comedy writer. You probably want to make it as weird and not formatted as possible. How do you balance those two well, things? Well, that's the goal. Is like I feel like with our show specifically, and I'm sure with every late-night show in general, you start out like, we don't want to do a monologue. We're going to be completely different. And we're going to make the guests sit in an aquarium and speak underwater. Like, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you want to do all this weird stuff, and then like you get closer and closer to your premiere date. And, like, it's like, maybe we'll do, like, two jokes in the monologue. And then, like, maybe three. And then we'll do a traditional monologue. Like, every, I think everybody has very, like, grandiose aims. And, you know, I think maybe that's what you do. You set your sights really high and try to be as original and innovative as possible. So when you fail at that, like you will, you're still, like, a little bit innovative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Have you had anything so far that, that you've been part of on the show, the creation of, that you feel really proud of, that you're really into? My favorite thing we've done so far was, it was an idea that had to do with pizza, because I came up with it. Ah, <laughs> It was a pizza-based idea. We sent Corden to people's houses with an actual pizza delivery driver, and uh, he, you know, the, the delivery guy had a real pizza. James had a pizza box, but it was the mystery pizza box. And what you could do is accept the pizza you ordered or gamble it all on whatever's inside the mystery pizza box. <laughs> And in some of the people, we had, like, nice prizes. One of them was a pizza covered in, like, $20 bills. You know, we had some nice stuff. One of the boxes was... By the way, I would still eat that pizza after I took the 20s off. I would have, like, accidentally, like, well, this one has some sauce. We'll just eat this 20. But uh, (laughs) one of the boxes had just kale in it. It was just full of kale. The guy was so angry. This Uh, audience would love that pizza. Oh, yeah, it'd be, like, fantastic. They'd get on a recumbent bike to ride to that pizza in Portland. (laughs) That's my favorite kind, kale. You don't like that? Oh, I love kale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Could you just substitute the dough with kale and yeah. the pepperoni with kale? Uh, <laughs> but, the, but the best thing that happened during that shoot, and I'm not giving away because it's already aired, but we had uh, 
one of the boxes, it was it, it had some sort of Japanese lettering in it, and what that meant was uh, now you would eat the pizza in a Japanese fashion, which meant with a sumo wrestling match happening in your house. So <laughs> this guy got that box, and then two sumo wrestlers, he was a second-story apartment, two sumo wrestlers come up the stairs, <laughs> and while they're eating the pizza, they had a sumo wrestling match in the person's apartment. <laughs> so that in itself was wonderful. The, even to top that... This was a second-story apartment. The tiniest, oldest woman came out of the bottom apartment, and she was like, what's all that noise up there? And I'd look her in the eye and be like, two sumo wrestlers are fighting in your upstairs neighbor's apartment. And then the sumo wrestlers came down the stairs. Like, she didn't and believe me. And she and was she, like, what? Oh. Then she think, was like, again? Right, again. <laughs> Ian Carmel, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Wow, here we are, Jason Rouse, at the end of another edition of LiveWire. The theme was Risky Business. Did you uh, pick up any tips throughout the last hour? I did. Uh, Courtney's essay. <laughs> that was powerful. Uh, powerful words. And I agree. And I, I, I would like to challenge, if I could just get every other man out there to refuse to shave his back with me... Come join me on my website, backtobackhair.org. I want you to know I'm it not only... It is a nonprofit. For it the is. Record. And it's like I'm not only the president, I'm also a client, you guys. Come join us. The world could be a better place. I learned something from uh, Kevin Allison, uh, the guy behind the Risk podcast. I mean, I've considered male prostitution. And I would never have guessed that the price-setting part was going to be the toughest part of the job. Other parts of that job seemed much harder to me. Me too! But I learned something today. Hey, that's our show. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Good night, everybody. Our thanks to our guests, Kevin Allison, Ian Carmel, and Houndstooth. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom, Dave Jorgensen, and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Our lighting is by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Culture Coalition, and listeners like you find people. For more information about the show and how you can become a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International.